Well, it's a great bonus to have uh, Professor Ivan, or I said, Ivan, get it right, Ivan, uh, top here. Um, he is here for two years. Uh, I hope uh, not able to be grateful here for longer. Um, he courtesy of the Blavatnik School of Government. Uh, his normal abode um, uh, these days is at Boston University, uh, where uh, he teaches international security and uh, strategic studies. Uh, he began, um, I think it's fair to say, as, 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 as a Russian expert in the days of the Cold War. Is that, is that fair? I mean, you did Slavic languages. Yes, yeah, I suppose that's fair. Uh, but unlike many people who might have been caught in that, he's managed to, uh, to escape at uh, the end of the Cold War, um, and in particular, has established a reputation in the study of asymmetric conflict. Uh, he published a very important book in 2005 with Cambridge uh, University Press uh, called How the Weak Win Wars. Um, and he is also a co-author of uh, one of the best-selling international relations textbooks, uh, Norton's Essentials of International Relations. Um, he uh, is working at the moment um, on the utility of barbarism, the utility of barbarism, the systematic or deliberate harm of non-competence in pursuit of a military objective. Um, and his title today, up there, so I don't even have to announce it, uh, but I will, uh, Military Literacy and War in the 21st Century. Right. Thank you. Sir, you had the best compliment from my graduate students last year. Uh, it's, it's always a pity when you can't uh, give proper, um, proper consideration uh, to uh, main historical events or important historical events related to security. And World War I is one of the most sort of interesting ones. And uh, Sir Hughes published a book, a single volume on World War I, which was my graduate students' all-time favorites. Those who had been with, uh, in other courses and had to labor through other texts, including multiple texts, uh, gave him the highest praise for that. And uh, indirectly, of course, I was praised for having assigned it. So I, I, I was pretty happy with that. All right, so... I think we need a few more of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the topic today actually emerges from just the practice of teaching, and in particular undergraduates. And it started um, with a sort of surprise. You know, my first big teaching job was in, um, in 2004. I was, I was uh, uh, lucky enough to land a job uh, as a contract hire teaching undergraduates at Wellesley College uh, in Massachusetts, which is an all-women's uh, liberal art college. And um, in a sort of sexist way, I, I began to worry as I proceeded through my, my intro to international relations course that there was too much, you know, too many bombs and bullets and too much blood and gore. And in one particular, um, I was holding forth in one particular lecture on the Battle of Stalingrad and, you know, uh, Chuikov and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it suddenly occurred to me, these women might have absolutely zero interest in any of this. And why aren't we really talking about, you know, democratic peace or something? You know, why are we getting into the war and all this kind of stuff? So, uh, being insecure, I, I, uh, I uh, had the idea of sending out a sort of informal, anonymous um, student evaluation questionnaire, and I asked them all to sort of fill it out, and, you know, the sort of basic questions, you know, what do you like so far about the course, what do you think I could be doing better, and what would you like to see that doesn't seem to be on the syllabus, that sort of thing. And what happened was an overwhelming amount of them really liked the military stuff which I'd been feeling guilty about, not just in a sort of sexist sense that maybe as young women, you know, up-and-coming young women in our country, they may not be interested in it, but in the sense of proportion in a course that's supposed to introduce international relations, I find myself veering more towards security. So this was the origins of the, the basic talk I'm going to have today, which again, you know, and, and in introducing it, is, is somewhat anecdotal at this point. There's, there's, you know, some evidence for this. But really I want to talk about military literacy, and I will be at pains as I proceed to try and distinguish that from something like a military experience or military expertise. Those are sort of higher levels of what I really want to get at, which is just sort of um, military literacy, and, and you could call it the advanced industrial world, the G8, the OECD. There are different euphemisms for it, but essentially the, uh, the advanced developing world. All right, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about the argument, you know, such as it is, which is, again, going to be really illogical or deductive logic. Um, uh, some of the problems I see with military literacy and the possibility, both the possibility and the, the nature of warfare moving forward. And then I'll offer a few conclusions, uh, both sort of summing up kind of what I've said um, and also offering a few sort of ideas of what I think could be done reasonably to repair what I see as a big sort of social problem in the OECD. 
All right, so I guess the first question everybody always wants to, you know, we sort of ground this is, does civilization, and I put civilization in quotes because it's a, it's a very loaded kind of term. You know, it was very commonly in use in the 19th century uh, in, in many of the treatises, whether they're political, diplomatic, uh, or military. The idea of civilization crops up again and again in our literature, both popular literature and in sort of social scientific literature. Um, but, you know, you could put it more colloquially, do we get better? Do we learn things and then put them behind us? And particularly, do we learn lessons of bad things that have happened to us? And we say, okay, you know, we've done that, we've been there, we're not doing that again. We've, we've advanced. So you have in, in your head, you have in mind this sort of graph that, you know, there's setbacks and everything else, but overall, the slope of the curve is positive over time. It may even be modestly positive, but there's this sort of teleological idea that we get better, right? And I'm just going to show you a, a, one of the lamer photos that I could find. The one that's stuck in my mind, I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But this is from Sarajevo in 1992. And, I, you know, I was in graduate school when this, the Balkans sort of disintegrated or imploded, however you want to put it. And I remember that this really rocked my world because prior to this, prior to some of the images that I was seeing, you know, and you, I don't know if you remember, a lot of you were, some of you anyway, were kids back then, uh, maybe even just born back then. But this was a shattering image to me, these kinds of images. The one that particularly got me was, I think it was in the New York Times, it was a picture of, a, of either a train or a bus, and a bunch of young little kids, maybe five and six-year-old, had their hands all up against the glass, and the train was leaving Sarajevo, or the bus was leaving Sarajevo, and their parents, such as they were, mostly women, and mostly old women, were on the other side just weeping, and you could see this sort of image. And I remember thinking, I thought we had put this behind us. I thought we weren't going to do this anymore. Right, so I was for me. It was really a, it's still kind of an emotional uh, affair. You know, we we should know better than this, but this stuff happens again and again. And so, I, I guess this is sort of chastening. Uh, it was a good thing intellectually for me. But the idea is that, as you'll see, I'm going to extend it into this talk. The idea is we can't put these things behind us. They crop up again and again. You could pick Rwanda. You could pick some of the events in Darfur. It doesn't have to be Africa either, but pick, a, pick an example, and it seems that we never really get to a point where we could say, okay, that was horrid, that was awful, we promised never again, and then here we are again, right? And I'm, I'm particularly playing into what we've seen in the last couple of years from Joshua Goldstein, from Stephen Pinker, a broader argument that we have put violence behind us. We have put war behind us. We've put organized violence behind us. We've outgrown it. Now is the time to focus on other things. We can focus on the economy, we can focus on this, on that, but we needn't really trouble ourselves so much. And aren't our militaries really overstaffed? Uh, don't they have, aren't we spending too many social resources on militaries preparing for wars that never come? And so, now, there's a reasonable argument to be made there, too. Okay? That's not a, quite what I'm sort of the target of this particular talk. But there is a sort of groundswell, at least in many circles, for the idea that we have put war behind us. War is a thing of the past. War is something like the you know, the Egyptians or whatever. It's, it's interesting, but it's way back there. Okay. All right, so I would say, yes, we get better, but at the same time, no, we backslide, right? And so that, that's, that, I think that's a mature position. You can pick your own proportions, however you like to see them. Um, you can say we tend to backslide more often than not, or the backslides are, or can be pretty fierce. Uh, but I don't think we can then neglect military studies, military history, and what I'm going to call today military literacy. All right, so what's the basic argument? We're all probably familiar, you should be familiar, with the idea that the distribution of states that could reasonably be called democratic, okay, democratic means in a minimalist sense, very simple sense, uh, common sense, some degree of popular sovereignty. Different de demographic, uh, democratic systems manage the popular sovereignty in different ways. We have proportional representation, we have lots of variants of what we still consider to be roughly democratic. But the number of them, in other words, the distribution of them has increased, okay? And it's ridden steadily since World War II. Um, and democracy, of course, comes with certain advantages, but it comes with certain demands, too. In order for it to work, or to be a government about which we're sort of encouraged or happy, happy with, um, uh, it demands simply not mass literacy, uh, but mass literacies, I would say, right? So this idea of popular sovereignty won't help us any if people aren't both somewhat informed, and aren't also exercising whatever degree they have within their democratic society of choice, both in their leaders and in the policies that the, their governments pursue. Okay? So that's sort of just building on basic sort of logical principle. All right, so not mass literacy, but mass literacies. And I'm going to hive off three and really focus on one today. Um, if mass literacies, plural, aren't obtainable, then at least elite literacy should be. 
Okay, uh, but I'll just make the argument quite quickly that elite literacy is not sufficient. And of course, you know, today I don't know if you've been following the news lately, but this was in the news today. You know, Prince Harry uh, is back from Helmand now, or coming back from Helmand, and he's he's suffering a bit of a letdown with. Uh, you know, the story is really quite quite sort of pro. Prince Harry and pro-military and everything else, but this, I actually find this, I don't find this so amusing, I actually find this really laudable, the idea that it's part of the responsibility of elites who govern to have some military experience, and if not military experience, then at a minimum level, literacy, military literacy, and of course the two aren't exactly quite the same, um, but but elites, it would be nice if elites, and of course, and, uh, I should also preface this by saying I am an American, and the United States is the example that's closest to me, and sort of what I hope happens when I get done with the talk, we have a Q&A, you, as you know, many of you are British nationals, could make draw your own conclusions about how much of this is, is still sort of unique to America, is sort of stuck in America, in the United States, and how much of this applies to Britain or possibly other places in the OECD or even beyond that. I leave that to you to sort of make your own judgments, but this is going to be, uh, sadly, uh, this is going to be a sort of U.S.-centric kind of analysis. It's a, in many, many cases, a kind of criticism of my own country. All right. And I'm going to make the argument that a thorny combination of factors has led to accelerating and overlapping illiteracies. Okay? And I'm just going to talk about uh, the literacies in a minute, but let me talk a little bit about democratization and sort of why that matters. So this, this is one of these sort of simple graphs. Um, uh, Freedom House tracks how many governments, and they have their own definitions. You can look them up. Uh, it's, it's fairly widely used, but not without controversy. Nothing in our business is, right? Uh, but essentially you can see that the trend line of the distribution of countries over time um, since 1972 has been more and more democratic, okay? So that's, in my view, that's, that means that the demand for literacy of all sorts, not just the ability to read and write, but military literacy, and I'm going to also add scientific and um, economic literacy, are relatively higher than they were in the past, okay? Peoples, in order to have good government, need to have at least a minimum grounding in these three big issue areas, and I think military literacy is definitely one of them. That's what I'm going to focus on today. Um, so again, what is the essence of democracy? Popular sovereignty? Government works best um, when informed leaders vet whatever policies they desire through debate both with other elites and with governed publics. There's an open question about how much of this happened in France before uh, Francois Hollande you know, sort of said, yes, let's use air power to sort of halt the, uh, the Islamists there in Mali. And I'm not by any means an expert on what's going on in Mali, although I have my, like a lot of you, I probably have strong opinions about it. Um, uh, so we can come back to that if you want. But anyway, that's the idea, the sort of John Stuart Mill idea that you have these sorts of debates, you have this sort of discussion, both within and across elites and then with elites and governed publics, and that what emerges from the, the clash of those positions is something that really estimates or is going to be better policy, good policy, good government anyway. Public oversight of policy implementation will only be effective if publics and elites ask good questions. And this is what I really want to get at. You know, I had a professor at the University of Chicago who used to say, you know, what we're hoping to train you to do is not answer things, but ask good questions. If you can ask good questions, you will always, there will always be somebody out there who's in demand for you, right? But asking good questions presupposes a couple of things, and literacy is one of them, right? We don't ask sometimes the best questions of our leaders when we go into a national debate. I mean, this really occurred to me, again, sort of, um, sort of autobiographically here. Uh, in the second election for president between, uh, the first one was between Gore and, and Bush W., and the second one between uh, Kerry and Bush W., but in the aftermath of this, I remember thinking, I remember having this thought that, well, the evidence is pretty clear. You know, this is this is pretty clearly what's going on. So, uh, you know, the, the the current president's going to be repudiated here, and being really shocked when it didn't happen. Now, <laughs> I can't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that my disagreements with the supporters of George W. Bush in the second elections are all about literacy. Some of them are, are about ideology. Uh, but anyway, asking good questions is really the, the the beginning of getting good government and good policy. All right. And that presupposes literacy, so I got a bit ahead of myself there. All right, what do I mean by literacy? Okay, it's not the same thing as expertise and not the same thing as experience, right? Here's the thing that always gets us. You know, when I was teaching at the Kennedy School uh, and uh, at Harvard, and when I uh, taught in other, uh, you know, situations, one of the things that always comes up was, well, who is this guy to tell us about war, right? 
Is he a colonel or a major? I mean, how many wars has this guy actually been in, right? So your authority as somebody who wants to talk about security studies, but war in particular, is often something that both you worry about and that some of your students will question, especially, you know, the military types. They'll come in and say, well, that's not what happened when I was in Bosnia myself. You know, and, you know, I took knives. and You know, there's always something that's happening that really, you know, seems to undermine uh, or potentially undermine your authority. But I guess the smart way to answer this is to say that think about how experience actually works, right? People's experiences can be generalized, but at some level, experience is no substitute for, for broader things like expertise and everything else because, you know, Prince Harry, for example, has experience in Helmand province as an Apache, you know, gunner and co-pilot, right? That's his experience. And there, there are some things about that experience he'll share with all soldiers, even Roman soldiers, right? But there are some parts that are unique, both and idiosyncratic, to him and to that place and that time. So you don't want to you don't want to actually confuse the two, okay? Military experience is something valuable, and we should all pay attention to it. But that experience tends to be punctuated experience, right? If you fought in World War II, you have a really amazing experience, but it's not the same as fighting in Indochina. It's not the same as fighting in Darfur. It's not the same as fighting in Algeria. You know, they they those experiences are different, and in some cases, those differences can be critical, right? Sometimes people forget that. Um, and expertise, too. The threshold I'm looking for is, I use literacy because it's really not about expertise. You know, one doesn't have to be an expert on the Second Punic War, you know, on, on the equipment of a Roman soldier or the difference between a T-34-76 or a T-34-85. You know, that's a kind of specialized expertise, which is great if you can get it. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not, but it's great if you can get it. But it's not actually necessary. Literacy, I think, for democracies, what I'm talking about, is possibly going to be Sufficient, sufficient. And the literacies I'm talking about include scientific, economic, and military, right? Now, in my country right now, scientific literacy is really under challenge, right? There's no, I mean, people have been saying, um, I heard a great analysis of U.S. politics, uh, uh, because uh, our president just, you know, had his second inauguration uh, yesterday, the formal ceremony. The BBC was on with a great analysis of American politics and everything else. But I think one thing my countrymen miss is, although... Um, in, in one part of the election, the president won overwhelmingly over his rival. In the popular vote, it was very close, right? And the, the, the political right, the side that supported the former governor, Romney, um, they have very particular ideas. Many of their constituents have very particular ideas about science, right? And they're kind of hostile to it, to be honest. And they're quite honest about it. They don't believe the earth is more than 4,000 years old. They believe the King James Version of the Old Testament is the literal record of history of the world and so on and so forth and these people all vote and they're very politically active right so scientific literacy is under challenge and it takes the form of, a lot of times it takes the form of school boards coming under challenge to introduce to either remove textbooks books that teach things like evolution um, uh, you know archaeology carbon dating these kinds of things or to add textbooks that actually teach religion whether it's called intelligent design and so on and so forth and we haven't escaped that in my country yet you know that's that's under siege what about economic literacy well economic literacy turns out to be a more complex issue but it's the basic idea that I, I don't think we teach economic literacy in high school and secondary education really you don't come across it at least in my country till you're an undergraduate and you're pretty much required to take macroeconomics and microeconomics and hopefully when you do that you gain a little bit of literacy about how markets work, about the relationship of regulation to markets, and so you can then intelligently answer questions about ta things like tax burdens, you know, ideology notwithstanding. That's a form of literacy that's under siege. You really, during the last election cycle, it's sort of, sort of airing the dirty laundry. You really see arguments made which are just incredibly unreasonable. They're not supported by anything in, you know, anything any economist has written, even the sort of conservative market, free market economists don't write to that extreme, and yet you have Americans saying basically things like, I don't think we should have to pay any taxes. You know, these taxes are all just a big burden. And, you know, they go on about this, right? And again, literacy would say, you know, look, it's not a question of whether you pay taxes or, and so on and so forth. It's how those taxes are used, and that's a debate. That's a debate anybody could have. You have it in this country. All right. I'm going to talk really about military literacy today, okay? And I, what I'm defining is it means familiarity with the fundamental components of organized military action. Fundamental components could be unpacked, right? So I think it, you know, I... It'd be nice if people knew about you know the history of a couple of, of big wars in my country. Maybe even the Civil War would be nice, right? But any particular war, if you knew a little bit about its history, how it was fought, what the issues that people fought over, how the equipment was used, what people thought was going to happen before it happened, what actually happened, and what about the war shaped the peace that followed, right? Those are sort of basic things I'd love everybody to understand. But even more basic than that, what do fighter planes do compared to bombers, right? What does a submarine do compared to an aircraft carrier? 
you would be amazed how many people don't know that. They don't know the difference between one of... What's the difference between a bomber and a fire? Basic military nuts and bolts. What is artillery? What's heavy artillery? When they hear a story from the BBC about the collapse of Gaddafi's regime meant that heavy weapons were being shipped across North Africa, right? Or West Africa. They don't know what the black box heavy weapons means. What is a heavy weapon? What's a cruiser weapon? What's the difference between a light machine gun and a heavy machine gun? Well, and all that kind of stuff. Just nuts and bolts. Stuff that you could learn in a really good class in high school. Right, called military literacy 101 or something like that. Right, just nuts and bolts. Right, that you would know. Artillery, infantry, cavalry. Right, simple things. What do these things really do? You know, and then you could get into more advanced questions, which is how does the technology of war, you know, as it changes, interface or interact with the things about war which are common across all experiences: fear of death, fear of killing. Right. Uh, non-combatant immunity, all these kinds of questions occupied soldiers from as far back as we have records, right? Soldiers, seamen, you know, sailors, and so on and so forth. So that's what I'm really after here, is basic military literacy. So that, so that when I lecture, I don't have to go all the way back to say, oh, uh, Napoleon's can't, well, I wouldn't, I, I don't get a chance to talk about Napoleon, right? But the difference between, you know, the, the trunnions, you know, this kind of stuff, if we just talk about artillery and how it's used, and now Napoleon was sort of an innovator in artillery early on, and then his innovations were widely copied. I don't have to go all the way back to fundamentals, even about cannonballs, you know. Uh, or if I talk about Trafalgar, I don't have to go through all the details of how muskets work, or the difference between a musket and a rifle, that kind of thing. If people just had a basic familiarity with that. Now, once I, I was holding forth, I'm sure, on this topic, and um, one of my students kind of came up. You always sort of love these moments. Sometimes, you know, like when you watch body language in an audience, you'll see people kind of like frown when you say things. Or, or they'll, they'll shake their heads and they'll write something, and that's almost always sort of a buzzkill, right? And then other times, they're, they're, they're nodding and they're gesturing, you know, whatever. But the best is when the lecture's over, and a few students will come up. And you can sometimes see them come up, and they'll just be like, their faces will be glowing, like you've, you've reached them in some way. And that's like your big magic moment as a teacher, right? You just love that. And this, this kid came up, and he goes, Professor, he says, you know, I wasn't really planning on it, but should I join the Marines? You know? <laughs> oh, no. I, I can just imagine this person's parents, you know. His professor said he should join the Marines, and he signed up today. No, no. You know, you don't need to join the military in order to get military literacy, in order to appreciate this, in order to be a really excellent, even exquisite student of security studies, military affairs, and everything else. However, having been in the service does give you probably insights. And I think a lot of them are insights you can share, right? but a lot of insights that are harder to get by any other means than being in there. Okay, So that's my sort of statement on that. Uh, but anyway, that was, it was sort of one of those moments for me that just kind of terrified me. It's like, no, 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 you don't need to join the Marines. And I don't know why everybody picks the Marines. Uh, uh, why not, you know, uh, the Air Force, where you're fairly safe compared to the other branches. No, no offense to the RAF types in here. Uh, uh, all right, examples. The nomenclature of warfare and some military history. Okay, So those are my two levels. I've already sort of given examples of the nomenclature of warfare, organized warfare. It was basically how weapons work. And uh, you know, my idea was, is, and I'm still sort of pushing against the administration at Boston University, to teach a basic course called you know, Weapons, Strategy, and War where I just basically could take undergraduates through, you know, why the stirrup matters, you know, as a technological development. Because at the end of the course, I want them to be able to navigate. When they hear something in the news about the RMA, the Revolution of Military Affairs, or drones, and how this has changed everything, you know, my countrymen tend to be, you know, no, I, I'm one of my countrymen, right, and I'm very proud of my countrymen, you know, my country, but we tend to be ahistorical. And so the idea of things being new... I'm not even close to being a historian. I wasn't trained as one. But even I know enough history to know that a lot of things that, that are said in the public media as, this is all new, this is, you know, this is unprecedented, right? Unprecedented. You know, when Al-Qaeda came up and we were told, you know, in the early 2000s that, that, they're, you know, that they're organized as kind of a net, you know, and they, they don't really have a, a hierarchy. And this is, this is unprecedented, you know. And I kept thinking, why is it unprecedented? Does anybody remember the anarchists in, you know, the 1890s, right? They didn't have a head either. And where did they go, right? Their lack of organization made them lose out to the Marxists, right? So anyway, but the old idea of things being unprecedented, I think I personally have become deeply skeptical of over time. It may be, 
right? But it needs, it needs subsidiary questions and some subsidiary work before we can actually start to say, okay, so-and-so so, so is unprecedented. So nomenclature of warfare, and then some military history, the basic contours of, of important battles. And they can be battles that are important to the particular country that you live in, right? I wouldn't expect American students to study, North American students to study the, the English Civil War as much as to study the American Civil War, right? Uh, but a lot of the lessons that you could draw from either are similar and valuable going forward, right? Again, if you're talking about a, a public broad public that's informed or sufficiently informed to really be a check on bad government decisions, this is the kind of thing you're going to want to hopefully get. All right, literacy is in decline. I'll just start by saying, in the United States at least, we continue to see decline in these core literacies, right? Uh, scientific, economic, and military. Um, the fact causes and distribution of literacy remain uh, as yet untested, right? So I have, some, I have a lot of anecdotal evidence, both from colleagues who teach uh, there's some evidence, you know, in the press that's out there, but this is something that I'm, I'm sort of toying with as my next big project after my the book I'm currently working on is done, which is just sort of asking whether these connections are actually right. For instance, the question that occurred to me, again, it's a cranky question uh, that has to do with what I just got finished saying, which is, is it a historical or not, is where am I convinced that in, say, in the 1920s and 30s, people had a higher military literacy in countries? You know, if I, if I could pick, say, a, a golden era where national leaders had both experience and they, you know, they have publics who are relatively informed, where and when would that be, right? If I'm critical of today, in other words, I have to make the case that there's something, something particularly different about today than in the past, right, in terms of literacy, in order for this thing to go forward. So when I say it's as yet untested, I'm just sharing with you fairly early thinking about something which may turn into a research program. Okay? Causes of decline, again, hypothetically. Um, this came up today on the radio just on the way in here, right? Uh, it turns out that you guys probably know that the, um, I think it's like the third tranche now of uh, British soldiers, 5,000 of them are about to be released. The MOD is about to essentially make them unemployed, right? So they're, they're going away. Uh, and accepted from that are people just about to go to Afghanistan and people just have come back. And the just have come back I'm happy about. But again, you know, this is one of the cuts. This comment is actually about um, uh, the sort of demographics, right? The demographics of conflict. It's a logical concomitant to the idea that if the distribution of interstate wars or major wars or, or, or interstate wars for that is dropping, then it makes sense that people, young people with experience at war is dropping too. And I just have a, a, a tiny infographic uh, from the Pew Research Center last year. Late last year, they published a, a, a set of surveys, overlapping surveys, where they basically say that young people today are much less likely than people my age, for instance, to know anyone who's had military service. There's just no one in their immediate family who's had it. Whereas you can see people over 65, 76% of respondents reported that they had a family member or knew someone who'd served in the military, right? So this is a sort of crude measure, just a sort of more than anecdotal, but less than convincing, um, that, that young people today, and who are, again, these people, 18 to 29, they're all voting age in democracies everywhere. They're people who are going to weigh in on national debates about how much should the British government support France in Mali. Right? Should they consider ground forces? Right? The French are now going to have this week. They're going to have 2,500 people in Mali. Right? 2,000 now. Another 500 on the way. The British, as I understand, have, have created, have given some logistical support in the form of, of two heavy lift aircraft. But this is a national debate. This is something that we should be talking about. If things don't improve pretty quickly, and Hollande is right that not stopping the Islamists in Mali will lead to a much worse situation later, later on, it would seem that it's in Britain's national interest to consider some more aggressive form or some more proactive, is a more neutral word, some more proactive form of engagement with this. And then that's going to require the British people to actually hopefully weigh in on a situation uh, about whether or not they, they need this. And again, this is just one sort of measure. Demographic shifts. We're all familiar with this. The OECD is the place where people aren't having babies anymore. Right? Put it bluntly. Right? Young women are having fewer children and they're having them later in life. Right? There are reasons for that, they're perfectly rational reasons, but as a result, we have a lot fewer people now. Right? And the, the nature of everything we do, from education to healthcare to, to a whole range of things, has been changed by demographic shifts. Right? Uh, and then this is the one that gets me, a collapse in the capacity of OECD economies to create long-term employment chances for secondary school graduates, right? This is, the, this is the key, right? This is the key. This is really happening in my country. We don't have anything, to, there's nothing you can do with a high school diploma in the United States right now, right? I mean, you can do something that's sort of dead end and short term, maybe cover your rent for a couple of months, maybe stave off worse things from happening, right? But there's really no, no, no one's really cracked this nut yet. Britain is still suffering from it. 
Europe and the EU are still suffering from it. We can, we can find jobs for most of our university graduates, but we're having a devil of a time trying to find meaningful careers and long-term employment for people that just have a high school education. And as a result, it's created all these sort of perverse features which feed into the military literacy problem, one of which is that everybody wants to get every kid in the, in the OECD into university. And the system was just, the education system of most of these countries is just not designed so that every child has a university degree. It's just not designed. It would be kind of inefficient if that happened. All right. Problems. Well, some problems I've talked about already. All right. This is, the, <laughs> this is my argument. In the absence of a critical mass of critical thinkers, right, you get, there's nothing to prevent journalism from collapsing into entertainment. Okay? This is probably a stretch, but people always talk about you know, journalism and Rupert Murdoch, and they complain in my country about how... You know, I have friends who are journalists, who have, a lot of them have bailed, and they're doing other things now, and they always say that the same thing. They say, I got into this field because I was passionate about journalism, but my editor won't let me do what it is I was trained to do. This has all become about entertainment, and I am sick of it. And they, they leave. Right? There's those who are staying in and fighting the good fight, but the argument is that, that, that this is somehow sort of cynical editors and everything else sort of foisting you know, entertainment in the form of news on people. But the, the more disturbing aspect is that they'll also say that we can't sell real journalism. There's no demand for it. People don't, for instance, in my country, don't turn to the foreign affairs pages of the newspaper. Only 30% of Americans ever read the foreign affairs pages of their paper. 30%, 7 out of 10 don't even turn to it. Right? So how can you be expected to weigh in on important matters like what, when, when or whether we should withdraw from Afghanistan? If Karzai comes to my country and says, we need you for another two years, we're not ready yet, where's the national debate about whether that's a reasonable argument or, wh or whether it is not? Right? How would you know if you've never read a paper? If you hadn't even thought that it was important to turn to that subject because, again, it just wasn't important, you didn't have any literacy. So that's one problem. Another problem is that politics tends to, to polarize. You know, I've got Yates here as a quote, but you know, it's just sort of going through my mind. But the center cannot hold, right? Uh, and that's gonna, that, I'm going to make that argument that that actually feeds in, or that's actually a consequence of the third thing, which is that there are various forms of argument. We, we teach, nowadays, my, you know, when I teach undergraduates, we have to spend the first couple of years basically teaching them to do things that we used to teach them in, in our country in high school, right? But basically, kinds of argument, kinds of argument, I try to use deductive reasoning supported by, uh, deductive logic supported by evidence, right? And then we argue about whether the evidence is good or bad, whether it fits the claims, whether the claims are actually suffer from logical problems, and that's a good, that's a good sort of meaty way to get into an argument, okay? But argument from authority is considered usually a, a logical problem or an ar argument fault. It's considered a sort of sin in debate, right? Where you basically say, well, Professor Strawn says that's what happened. And he's, wow, it's Professor Strong. It, it must be true, right? Uh, and it may be true, but it's really not something you want to kind of hang your hat on. You really want to ask subsidiary questions and say, well, if you're supposed to ask Professor Strong about relationship advice, right? You know, I mean, great. He's great on war. He could tell you about Napoleon and his cannons and everything else. I'm making all this up. But, um, but you know, he's great on war. But would you ask him for relationship advice because he's an expert on one thing? No. And, and so argument from authority then feeds into this second problem about polarization politics. I'll just give you a quote that kind of shocked me. This is not taken out of context. The, the President Bush was giving a speech in 2005. His government had come under criticism because uh, I think if you remember in 2003, he'd appeared on a U.S. aircraft carrier behind, in front of a banner reading, Mission Accomplished, War in Iraq. And a lot of criticism had followed, and in 2005 it reached a kind of crescendo because Iraq was just going south. He and, and his defense secretary, Rumsfeld, were making a hash of it. Uh, it was a complete disaster. And he gives a speech at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, in which he says, he's talking about troop levels and a timetable for withdrawal from Iraq, right? And he's saying, and this is a quote, these decisions about troop levels will be driven by the conditions on the ground in Iraq and the good judgment of our commanders, not by artificial timetables set by politicians in Washington. Now, why that should catch your attention if it doesn't, why it caught my attention is because it's precisely the opposite. Politici we have a government where politicians in Washington are in charge of our commanders in the field and not the other way around. But in a world where argument from authority matters the most, and you know that both as a representative, as a senator, a congressman, and as an average American citizen, you haven't got a clue, okay, you're completely ignorant, right, then basically you have to defer to the generals. You have to say, well, what do you think, general? This is a serious problem in my view. We do not want to just come to the generals without good questions. We want to ask them good questions, but we want to say, well, we haven't got a clue what to do. What would you do? Right? 
I mean, this is Caesar crossing the Tiber, right? You, you, just, you just do not want this, right? You do not want this kind of problem. And so I really reacted to this. I remember kind of walking around the street saying, why isn't anybody talking about this? This is odd, isn't it? I mean, we have a system of government where the civilian authorities in control of the military, so on and so forth. But I think it's, bo- it's revealing both of a sort of set of frustration because the phrase politicians in Washington has its own Orwellian sort of doublespeak meaning in my country, right? It, it just politicians in Washington are just necessarily bad, lazy, evil, you know, <laughs> evil doers, whatever. Another Orwellian sort of metaphor. But anyway, they're just sort of bad. But if you unpack that, it's essentially politicians shouldn't be telling our generals what to do. Right? And that comes from a, from a misapplication of argument from authority. It's where you don't have a clue, and you basically say, since I don't have a clue, and you're the general, we'll ask you. Okay? That, to me, seems to be a problem. All right. A rise in military illiteracy. I'm, I'm going to say the long piece in the OECD is the most obvious one. Right. So uh, I don't know how many are familiar with um, Joshua Goldstein's book. Uh, it came, it's come under some criticism. There are some fun things to criticize about it. But empirically, he's really just documenting something that all of us in the field have observed, which is that the frequency and intensity of interstate war continues to decline. Now, his argument for why that's declined is, is more controversial, but the empirical trend line is not, right? So the argument is that since war seems to be going out of business, why bother studying it anymore, right? That's, I mean, it's as simple as that. You, know, you may, may disagree with it, or you say, we only have so many teaching resources, why teach something that's just sort of become antiquated, right? Um, but the long piece in the OECD does make people think, okay, you know, we've moved past this. Okay, and I've, I've already told you I think that's, that's probably not a good idea. Second, overall decline in the quality of secondary education. I don't know if that's a European problem. I don't know if it's a British problem. I don't know. I mean, in our country, it's definitely a problem. And it, it's, you know, it's, the people who are sort of experts at this, I'm not one of them, but the sociologists who study this, they are now sort of converging on an argument for why secondary education is producing people with higher test scores and worse sort of thinking skills across the board. And they think a lot of it has to do with education reform aimed at, at, at aimed in a very good way, a well-intentioned way, of bringing the lowest quartile of performing students, and many of them are poor students, into the mainstream. So uh, I think the Bush administration, the W administration, called it No Child Left Behind. But it set in motion a sort of a test fetishism that then began to sort of cannibalize real education and start to be test teaching rather than, than education the way we might understand it more broadly in the past, right? So that's an argument for that decline. That's, that's sort of where the consensus is there. There is some, still some argument about that. And then the last, this is a particular Achilles heel of my countrymen. I'm a sucker for it too, right? I remember when I was a kid and I was reading all these great stories, these like romantic stories about World War II. You know, I would always come back to the story about sonar and the Battle of the North Atlantic or radar, you know, doubting going to the prime minister of his bunker in London and saying, sir, we only have a fortnight left, and then the RAF would be defenseless, you know, right? But radar, you know, the ability to, this primitive little device to sort of give a bearing and sort of number on incoming German bombers and everything else, that's, that won the Battle of Britain, right? You know, later on I came to see it was, it was young British men flying these, these planes, some of which were filled with holes and leaking with things, and they were filled with holes and everything. It was people who won the Battle of Britain rather than the technology. But back then it was the Spitfire, it was radar, it was sonar, it was, you know, all these kinds of technological things. And, you know, I was surrounded by a country who really thought that, that technology won the war. Um, how many have read, have you read, just out of curiosity, have read um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was well, the part that really caught my attention. I've read it a couple of times, and I notice something different about it every time. But the end of the book, we hear we, Billy becomes a prisoner of war in a German prisoner of war camp, and there's an American section and there's a British section. And there's a bunch of really amusing stuff told about the British and Americans. But one of the things that really struck me that I hadn't been aware of was just how the Germans and the British could agree. They disagreed on many things, but one thing they really agreed on is that the Americans sucked as soldiers that what they really were were people riding these great, glowing, fantastic killing machines, and that really they had no skill as soldiers. It was all bombs and bullets and planes and stuff that was winning the war. And they were just sort of commiserating with each other about the Americans, you know, uh, uh, so on and so forth. And I was really struck by that because I thought, you know, that's, that's, it's not entirely fair. I mean, a lot of American warriors were really excellent at what they did as soldiers. And any soldier would respect that soldiering, right? That that, you know, naval gunnery, that whatever it happened to be. So that was there. But there still is a critique that lurks there, even today, about America essentially not, you know, being essentially a techno-heavy, a techno-fetishist kind of nation. And I think it's a fair critique. I think you could tear, take it too far, um, uh, and a lot of people do take it too far. But the idea is, and here's the thing, this is the hardest thing about teaching anything having to do with military history. Um, and, and really smart people are susceptible to it. Uh, Robert McNamara, who was in Vietnam, was told by some of his advisors 
that the problem of infiltration uh, across the, the demilitarized zone would soon be solved by a technological innovation called remote sensing, right? So they'd be able to create a sensor net that could pick up the Viet Cong as they came across, and we'd be able to sort of, you know, a little light beep would go off, and then you know, send a patrol or artillery barrage or a fire mission or something else there, and you'd stop the infiltration, and this would be. But this, this is this sort of idea that there's this technological solution to an old soldiery problem. Almost never actually happens. But again, why study the lessons of the past? Why study the French and Indochina? I mean, my God, they didn't have napalm. They didn't have fighter planes. They had a few combat helicopters, maybe, right? Nothing. They're not like the U.S., but we don't need to study them because we are just so much better equipped. Kitted out, I guess, as you might say, right? So I would say techno-fueled anti-historicism, right? Uh, do any of you remember the robots which were going to solve the problem of IEDs in Iraq, in urban warfare in Iraq? What happened to those? We just stopped hearing about them. And then we get the, the, the Hurt Locker as a movie, right? That, that's another fun theme, is that art sometimes does a better job than academia in, uh, in teaching military literacy, right? Uh, sadly. Because, of course, the teaching military literacy is, is something I'd love to talk about, but it's not something that turns out to be that easy to do, any more than teaching military history is easy to do. All right, consequences include impossible missions. When, just before David Petraeus got his fourth star, he came to Harvard. Harvard's one of those great places to be for no other reason than it tends to attract, you know, important people with important jobs. They always want to come and say that they went to Harvard and gave a talk. And so I was at this talk that Petraeus gave. He was coming basically to tell us not about where he was going, but where he was coming from. And his job the previous year had been, he was at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, working on military doctrine and new techniques of essentially trying to square a very old and problematic circle for them. You're probably aware that a lot of militaries had, our military in particular, the U.S. military in particular, had a really vicious infight about the sort of special operations forces or, or unconventional warriors and the conventional forces, right? And for our, in our country, this, this had to be solved, actually this dust-up had to be actually solved by an act of Congress called the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which took place, which was sort of went into effect in 1986. But prior to that, what ended up happening is we'd have a war, we'd find special operations forces indispensable, we'd train them, hire them, deploy them, they'd do great stuff, and then after the war we'd pretend they never existed. They'd all get fired and be forced to become regular officers, and these, these are crazy people. Uh, you know any special operations people? These really are not people that like discipline. They don't like to shave. They hate uniforms. They, a sergeant will tell a captain what to do. And, and you know, I mean, really, it's whoever knows what to do best is in charge. And this drives the conventional military absolutely bonkers. Right? It drives them nuts. So they hate these guys and they want to get rid of them. All right. Why am I talking about this now? So Petraeus came out and it, it occurred. You know, the conversation was really more about what was going on in Iraq. He wanted to talk about what he'd been doing in Leavenworth, but what he's trying to do is figure out a way that they could reorganize the conventional U.S. military did counterinsurgency missions better without actually letting them all become special operations forces. In other words, the conventional guys, right? The old guys with the start, armor officers, you know, artillery guys, all those sort of mainline conventional guys, the cavalry guys, you know, they did not want to give up their power to special operations forces, even though the weight of opinion was that we need more special operations forces to fight insurgencies. We need fewer, you know, Air Force missions. We need fewer sort of tanks and so on and so forth. Right? And so he was supposed to square that circle, and by all accounts he did. You know, the stuff he talked about was actually kind of impressive. Uh, how he'd managed to sort of create a, 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 a new kind of force which could, it wouldn't be very good at, um, um, at counterinsurgency, but it wouldn't suck as badly as a conventional infantry officer would, right? And if it came down to it, we needed the conventional infantry officer, we wouldn't have to sort of basically say, okay, we can take this special operations forces guy, give him a haircut, put him in a crisp uniform with nice creases, and send him off to the front, right? Um, that was what he was doing. Well, anyway, the, it emerged during this talk, and this was the most interesting part of it, that, uh, that it turns out that it's kind of a lifespan to a different kind of combat, right? And that the state of the art about counterinsurgency is that we're really talking, even if you do everything right, seven to ten years for a mission. Seven to ten years. Now, first of all, democracies, whatever else you may say about them, tend not to be patient. Mine isn't particularly patient, right? I don't, the, the, the British are famously patient, patient in only one case I can think of, which is the, uh, the, the, the Malayan emergency. But generally, we're not very patient. And... Um, so you get, you know, if you start looking, just do it off the top of your head right now. What was the longest you can think of uh, for a U.S. war, for example, uh, of public support being sort of high enough to keep the war going? And I couldn't think of too many off the top of my head that lasted longer than three years. So that's what I mean by impossible missions. If you're going to start a counterinsurgency problem and you've got three years to do it in, but the minimum time to get one of these things off the ground and actually working is ten years, you have an existentially impossible mission. You can't do it. You just can't. 
because public opinion will tank after three years, no matter what you do, and there'll be calls to pull out roughly halfway through, or even just as things are starting to get better, right? And that is one of the problems that he wasn't able to answer. Basically, when I, I asked him the question, he said, well, that's a little bit above my pay grade, which considering he was a core commander, a three-star general, that was pretty good. By the way, that's another literacy. I, would, I always try and get all my students to understand at least one service's ranks, visual ranks, right? So that when they're watching TV and they say, and somebody says, Sergeant, you know, do this or that. They understand the difference between a sergeant, a lieutenant, and a colonel. Yeah, I mean, just basic nuts and bolts literacy. They should know military ranks. Pick a service. You know, the Navy is more challenging in our country, right? Probably here, too. All right. Um, second, excessive and badly distributed military spending. All right? It turns out that there are perverse effects to having a capital-intensive military preparing for major interstate war, which is that special operations forces, bless them, which really are in demand now, they don't have that big a sort of... Uh, footprint in terms of goodies that you could get on Capitol Hill, right? I mean, Fort Bragg is not, you know, employ hundreds. It's not like Raytheon, you know, where it's employing hundreds of thousands of people, engineers, and everything else to make high-tech goodies that can, you know, pick the DNA out of somebody's sweat and find it and kill them, you know, this kind of thing, right? So, so in terms of in terms of pork, there's not a lot of pork in special operations forces, and of course that, that's beside the fact that. You know, you can train, you can pull almost any 18-year-old out of, the, out of the, the, the population, male or female, and within six to eight weeks, with some attrition, you can train them all to be a conventional soldier. But the same is not true of special operations forces. They're unbelievably difficult to get through, right? The attrition rates of these guys is really high. It takes somebody really special and kind of kooky to make it. All right, so that's another one. And then third, PTSD is more intense. Let me just briefly go into this. What do I mean by that? One reason that soldiers fear coming home is because they fear that home isn't there. And it's not just because they think that home has changed. It's because they understand something really profound. They have changed. The I that they were before they left is not the I that's, that's getting ready to come home, right? And the only eyes that they are comfortable around are other eyes like them who have been through what they've been through, right? And if you're coming back to a society where a tiny minority serve, that means that all other things being equal, you're not going to find another lot of other people who could share what you've been through. Right? You can't go to the corner bar and put your arm around someone and say, man, that day in Helmand. You know, and, they, and you feel that they can understand you. Okay, military literacy won't cure that problem, but it could help it. Right? I was in a situation, um, my wife and I have, uh, have uh, something, I don't know if they have it here, but in the U.S., depending on where you live, uh, what state you live in, you can have something called veterans plates on your license, you know, registration plates on your car. Right? And Monica probably thought, well, you know, we'll get these and maybe we'll get fewer tickets. Right? Uh, 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 but, you know, for both of us, there's, there was a sort of cynical remark, but both of us were actually pretty proud of our military service. I met her when we were both in the U.S. Army. So um, I'm sitting in a place with the kids. We've just gone climbing in New Hampshire, and we're coming back, and we're pulling off to get gas at a station in North Conway, New Hampshire. And I'm sitting there in the car waiting for Monica to come in, and some gentleman with a cowboy hat and really bow legs kind of limps toward my car, and he looks, and he limps toward it again, and he comes right up to me, and he says... Uh, you the veteran? And I, you know, kind of was sh shocked by this, and I said, responsibly, actually, I'm really proud of this, I said, I'm one of them, right? Because if Monica had been in the car, he probably would have assumed I was the veteran anyway, because I'm the man, right? So, anyway, I'm one of them, and he goes, he goes, well, God bless you, man. And he puts his hand and goes, thank you, and shakes my hand. And I remember being really conflicted about this afterwards, right? What does he think I've done for him? What is his idea of what my sacrifice and service means, right? Does it would it matter to him, for instance, if I told him that as a sir, as a guy in the U.S. Army, I was never in combat, right? Would he think less of me? Would he thank me just as vigorously, right? If he found out I was in military intelligence instead of in infantry, let's say, right? So these are the kinds of questions, and I've experienced this with my own um, colleagues and friends who are veterans. Uh, they report roughly similar stories, and in fact, some of my students wear their uniforms to class several times during the week. A lot of people walk up on the street and thank them. And they always feel kind of mixed about it. But on balance, I think it depresses them. And the reason is, is because they don't think the person who's congratulating them has any idea what their job is, what they've been through, or what they might be going through. And so the compliment doesn't have the same, the same kind of resonance as it might if you were talking to somebody who had been through it or who knew something about it and said, thank you. Right? So they assume ignorance on the part of the people that are congratulating them. Right? PTSD will be more intense if you don't have military literacy and certain, certainly if you don't have even things like the draft. All right, what next? I'll just end my talk right now. All right, 
I've pretty much made this position clear. I don't. I, I'm really happy with the graphs. I'm really happy with Joel, uh, Goldstein's and Pinker's argument. I'm happy that people don't spank their kids anymore, right? I'm happy about all this. I would be the last person to say, no, you know, I yearn for the days when, you know, people had bunkers in their yard and stuff like that. No, I'm glad that interstate war is in the decline and that the trend graphs are doing the same way. But I am not one of those people who is convinced that we that there's no possibility of backsliding, right? And, that, and in fact, I would, go, I would go one step further in saying that ignorance is one of the things, mass ignorance, mass illiteracy, is one of the things which could make an, uh, the return to interstate war of the kind we've seen in the past, or maybe worse, more likely, right? So the less literate we are, the more we, we refuse to inform ourselves, the more we refuse to take military affairs seriously, the more likely we make the thing we think we've put away, the thing we've driven the stake through its heart, okay? So major interstate war remains a real possibility, even if it didn't, the persistence of intrastate war, right? I'm fond of citing a statistic from a, a book by Patrick Brogan, who's a, he was a journalist, who put together just a little uh, a book in the late 80s, it was 89, uh, called The Fighting Never Stopped. And he goes as dated now, but it basically makes the point that although World War II, the estimate, casualty estimates differed, right? Although World, World War II concentrated a lot of death and destruction in a relatively short period of time, say six years, in the intervening years, over 45 million people had lost their lives completely out of the context of interstate wars. 45 million, almost the same number total of casualties in the Second World War in 45 years. Now that's just not negligible, I'm sorry. Uh, I just don't think it's negligible. I mean, we could make an argument about uh, when negligible happens, but I don't think that's it. So I think that even the persistence of intrastate war is sufficient to warrant an effort to reverse what I think of as military illiteracy. All right. Now, um, I like this idea of I like the idea of offering high school students secondary, you know, at secondary level of education, a course called sort of like Military 101. I really, I just really don't see the downside with that. I mean, I guess the argument that's made against that you could make against it would be this. And this is not to be dismissed, but I think it's a weak argument. But the argument is that look, if you teach people about violence, they'll support violence. They'll be violent. Have we heard that before? We've heard different versions of that in the public policy problem. If you teach people about young people about sex. They'll do it more, right? If you teach young people about, you know, religion, they'll, you know, they'll all become jihadis, you know, whatever. So the the form of the argument has the same kind of form, and I think it's been shown to be weak in a lot of other ways. I'd say it's weak here, right? Uh, I'd say actually that if you do your job well, uh, you won't have kids who come out of a military 101 class wanting to join the Marines, right? <laughs> wanting to join the Marines. It might actually be a hedge against that. Uh, or a caution to that kind of um, that kind of action. Not that there's anything wrong with joining the Marines. Okay, I don't want to I don't want to say military service is bad just because I don't think it's necessary. All right, reinstituting compulsory military service is something that's been floated. I know a lot of my friends um, and colleagues who have military service uh, are are really sort of livid with the idea of both Clinton and Bush not serving. Right, the idea of having a national executive who hadn't served in the military strikes them as, as sort of a real serious problem. And there's been, you guys have read some of this stuff. There's tons written about this, right? So, but one of the suggestions for, for solving that is to say, you know, look, we need a draft again. It doesn't have to be four years of service. It doesn't have to be three years of service, two years. Probably 18 months would be sufficient, right? And it would give people at least a different kind of sense or insight into what is possible and what isn't possible with, with a contemporary military. Okay? So that may not be necessary. Again, this is something that would be fun to look at in a, in a research project. I haven't undertaken it yet, but uh, look at that. And this is anecdotal, but I've been teaching, you know, I've been teaching now since 2004, uh, undergraduates, and that now is thousands and thousands of young people who always surprise me by their real interest in this. In other words, departments are always saying, well, we don't have any demand for it. And, I, and on the front lines, you know, teaching, I see very high demand for it. And this, I mentioned the Wellesley example because it's not gender demand in the sense that it's not just men, young men, who want to know about the military, but young women as well. And they ask really interesting questions, questions that I always say, well, I wish I had a course that I could address it, and I wish I could ask you, I mean, I, I, could, I had time in this course to address those issues, but I don't. Here's what I suggest you do or where you go to read about this. But there is high demand for military literacy and post-secondary education, at least if my experience is really idiosyncratic, um, then it's pretty strongly idiosyncratic in the sense that I've just had the, the luck to just teach undergraduates who are really interested in this, okay? And I think that's, uh, that's where I'll end it. Thank you.